Nobody likes waiting. And in fact, if you've ever been in a waiting room, especially a doctor's waiting room, you know that what goes on in your stomach and in your heart is that I don't want to be here. I'd rather be almost anywhere else than here. This morning's text is all about being in God's waiting room. And in fact, the waiting room that God often puts us in is a kind of waiting room that leaves you feeling empty and abandoned and challenged to the brink of what you feel like you're capable of doing. This morning's text will be an encouragement to you if you're going through pain, but I can promise you it will also be an encouragement to you when you go through pain. And as I talked about last week, what you're about to hear is how to be happy in God when you're terrified and not happy at all. This morning's text is going to leave you feeling uncomfortable because the resolution of the psalm is not the resolution of the situation. It ends on a minor key. It's hopelessness and hope intermingled together. I can't wait to take you through this text. But what you need to know before going into it is that this will probably be one of the heavier sermons that you hear from me because it deals with such an important topic and such a, a facet of who we are as human beings that it needs to be handled delicately. So I need you to put on your thinking caps and your attention eyes on this sermon and listen closely to what God has to say to you. Because whether or not you're hurting right now or it's going to be in the future, I can promise you this, what's going to happen in your teenage life and in your years is that you're going to be hurt. You're going to be challenged. You're going to feel pain in ways that you may not have even realized you were capable of feeling. And in fact, I, know for, I also know for a fact that at this present moment, there are several of you in the room who are going through a type of inner turmoil that feels like you're lonely and abandoned and that God cares nothing for you. Welcome to Psalm 13, which is really all about that. In God's waiting room, where everyone goes, this is how to respond. When you're feeling suicidal or depressed or anxious, this is how to respond. Because here's the thing, the, the world is getting privy and savvy to the fact that suicide and suicide awareness is something we should be a lot more uh, cognizant of. It should be part of our regular conversation. We should be asking each other, hey, are you suicidal today? How's things going? Or how are you feeling? We should be aware of those things because there's such a painful reality for us right now. And in fact, there was a song written all about suicide prevention. Uh, it was written by Logic and a few others. You might know the lyrics. I've been on the low. I've been taking my time. I feel like I'm out of my mind. It feels like my life ain't mine. Who can relate? I've been on the low. I've been taking my time. I feel like I'm out of my mind. It feels like my life ain't mine. I don't want to be alive. I don't want to be alive. I just want to die today. I just want to die. Now, this is a great start because he's identifying, and all these guys are identifying, a real, uh, a real heartache in the human life. In fact, you've been told it's as a mental illness, and perhaps it's part of it to, to, to be blamed on for that. But the reality is that all of us know what it's like to go through a season of waiting and of feeling a great deal of pain. So how does he deal with it? How are we supposed to deal with it? Here's how logic identifies it. He says, all this other stuff I'm talking about, they think they know it. I've been praying for somebody to save me. No one's heroic. All my life don't even matter. And my life, rather. And my life don't even matter. I know it. I know it. I know I'm hurting deep down, but can't show it. I never had a place to call my own. I never had a home. Ain't no one calling my phone. Where you been? Where you at? What's on your mind? They say every life is precious, but no one cares about mine. Okay. 
So the feeling of isolation and loneliness is not specific to Christians. This is for all of us. Now, here's what I want you to pay special attention to. How does the world that you're in tell you how to deal with this? Because when this hits home for you and you're in your room and you're by yourself and you're thinking about all the things that are wrong with your life, how does the world want you to deal with this? How do they offer you hope in the midst of sadness? Listen close. Here's how he ends the song. Pain don't hurt the same, I know. The lane I travel feels alone, but I'm moving till my legs give out and I see my tears melt in the snow. But I don't want to cry. I don't want to cry anymore. I want to feel alive. I don't want to, I don't want to die anymore. Oh, I don't want to, I don't want to, I don't even want to die anymore. I liken this song in terms of hope for you as someone who blows that, that vape in the air. You've seen that, right? It looks like it's got substance. It's beautiful. It has these nice shapes. And then suddenly it's gone. It dissipates into nothing. This is the hope you have. The point that the song is, and that the song's title is the, the phone number to the suicide prevention hotline. But the problem with that is that it offers nothing of substance. It offers you nothing when it comes down to, well, what do I do with this? How do I live with it? Well, okay, just don't feel like you want to die anymore. You, you know, keep running until your legs give out. Why? Why? The lane I travel only feels alone. Well, what if it is though? What if it really is alone? What if I do feel like everyone's let me down and no one understands me and my parents won't listen to me, my friends don't like me anymore, I've been blocked on this person from this, this site. I mean, what, what do you really do with that? The world says, hey, just try to smile, smile through the pain, hopefully things get better for you. Do you realize, do you realize what's being offered to you is nothing? Here, here's nothing. Pretend that there's something there, but here's nothing. I may seem a little frustrated by this because I am. I look around at your faces and I think about your peers and the thousands of people that you go to school with and I ask myself, who's offering them real substantive hope? And the answer is, well, not logic. He's got a suicide hotline that he wants you to call when you're feeling blue, but when it comes down to it, there's nothing there for you except, well, hey, smile a little more, meditate, journal. Hopefully things work out better for you. But Psalm 13, Psalm 13 offers real hope in spite of a real pain. Psalm 13 is written by King David. King David is, of course, you know, one of Israel's greatest kings. He's an archetype. He's a prototype of the, the king to come, King Jesus. And what's happening in this psalm is David expressing his heartfelt concern to God that God has forgotten him, that God is no longer listening to him. And so, what King David does is complain and lays out it all. He lays all of it to God. And he says, God, look how terrible life is. In fact, in fact, listen to the words he's about to say and see if you can resonate with any of them. Here's how he starts off. He says, how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? If you notice the words, how long, they're repeated how many times? Verse 1, verse 1b, verse 2, verse 2b. You get a sense of our verse 3, uh, 2c, really. Repetition in Hebrew is, is, is a, a way of emphasis. And so when we say God is holy, you'll notice in Isaiah chapter 6, the angels sing that God is holy, 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 which is to say he's holy as they come. There's nothing like him. He is holy, holy, holy. It's a trifecta. 
David says, how long, how long, how long, how long? He's going above and beyond to say, I feel like there's no end in sight. How long, God? I've been feeling here. I feel like this forever. And there's no end in sight. How long, God? What's he complaining about? Will you forget me forever? David feels like uh, God has forgotten him, has abandoned him. Now, can, can God actually forget? No. It's an anthropomorphism. That's a way of describing God using human terms, things that we can identify with. And so David says, God, have you abandoned me? Have you let me go? Are you not even paying attention, essentially? How long will you hide your face from me? Uh, the face of God is to show the approval of God. So David is saying, you're disapproving of me. You've set yourself against me. You've rejected me. God, the one that he has served and loved. In fact, David was called a man after God's own heart. And yet in this section, he's saying, God, you've rejected me, even though I've tried to draw near to you. How long must I take counsel in my soul? He's essentially saying, I have no one to talk to, God. <laughs> You won't listen to me. There's no one else. I can only talk to myself like a crazy person because that's all I got. I have to take counsel of my own soul because I've got no one else around me who loves me enough and is willing to listen. How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? There's injustice, God. The bad guys are winning. Bad guys are winning. And here you are delaying for some reason. I love David's brutal honesty. And the one thing I want to point out to you, the man after God's own heart, he did something that you and I fail to do often. And that's to bring our pain to God, to bring all of it in our messiness, to bring everything to God and be unwilling to hide anything from him. It's like when someone says, hey, are you okay? And you know you're not. And you say, yeah, I'm fine, bro. I'm good. Chill, happy. And that's not the truth. Or like trying to clean your room by hiding stuff under your bed or just shoving in your closet hoping that kind of, it looks better on the outside, but if you just open the closet and when your mom opens the closet and the avalanche falls on her, it's like, oh, okay, I guess it wasn't clean after all. That's what we're trying to do when we try to hide this stuff from God. The, the, the reality is, God, is that bringing your pain to God is messy, requires effort, but it's the biggest and most helpful thing that you could do with your life. In fact, let me put it like this way. You shouldn't avoid God. I know sometimes it feels like going to God is, 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 an, is, is a problem or is, is costly. Some people think that avoiding the doctor's office means that you're not sick. But see, when we go to God, that's where the healing is actually done. Notice that David prays, how long, oh Lord, he's talking to his God and saying, I know you care, but it doesn't feel like it. Not only is that where the healing is done, but underneath this all is a tacit affirmation. David is saying, God, I, I know that I can complain to my small group leader and my pastor and could talk to my friends at school, but really I know that you're the only one who has the power to change anything, which is probably what makes it so painful. It's like if you go to your parents and you ask them, I want to go somewhere, I need a hundred bucks to do this, can you give me a hundred dollars? Your parents say no. They don't fully explain why, so you're angry at them. You know, like, why can't you just give me the money? I need to do this. And you're frustrated and angry because they didn't have the power to help and yet they choose not to. When we transfer that frustration to God, we realize, God, you have the power to do whatever you want. So why can't you just get in the gear and do what I ask you to do? It's humbling, and yet that's the very thing we need. We need not to avoid God when we're in pain. We need to go to God. And not only that, sometimes we fail to be fully honest with God. And that's why, and sometimes there's, there's psalms where, where the psalmist prays, God, search me and know me. Sometimes we often don't realize the multiple motivations that we have or the ulterior motives that we have before God, but he knows. And so here's the thing. When you go to God, it needs to be not an avoidance of him, but an honesty with him. God, I'm angry at you. I'm hurting. It feels like you've abandoned me. I hate my life right now. Have you ever prayed that to God? 
I'll be honest with you. I've had those days. I hate my life, God. I don't want to live. But when we take that to God and all of its messiness and grossness, I mean, when you get the ugly cry face in front of God, that's when you know real work is happening. Because when we're willing to bring that to God, that's the place where the healing can begin and that's where something can actually take place. God responds to prayer. And furthermore, our hearts respond to God when we're honest with him. Instead of playing the game of, I'm fine, everything's amazing, my life is wonderful. When just below the surface, if we're willing to be honest, things are not wonderful. Things are not awesome. We need to bring it to God and be brutally honest with him. Middle school, I fell off a school roof. True story. And I broke my wrist. I have said this before. Some of you guys already know the story, but I broke my wrist and it was like bad broke. It wasn't just like, oh, a little fracture. It was like it was going different directions kind of broke. So I obviously went to the doctor. Um, and funny enough, the doctor didn't tell me, hey, Rod, you're fine. Smile, get out of the office. Here's a couple ibuprofen, you're good to go. He acknowledged the fact that my wrist was indeed broken. And, and not only that, but he said, by the way, we're going to fix this, but it's not going to feel good. <laughs> um, we're going to have to realign your wrist because currently it's not aligned. Um, and that day, the doctor helped me with that by giving me some special pills that made me really, really happy and really relaxed and a little loopy, quite honestly. <laughs> and so he has my arm hanging from like this, I don't know what it was. It was holding my, the top of my hand and then it was kind of like, he was letting gravity try to first realign whatever was able to be realigned that way. And then he's like, all right, here we go. And we're going to, you know, massage it back into place. He did a couple of these things and trying to squish it and just, you know, punch. I think he punched it once or twice to put it back in alignment. And because he's a good doctor, he didn't, he didn't care that it hurt. Actually, I was really loopy, so I didn't hurt that much. I was a little out of it. I was having a grab. I'm like, oh, it's awesome. If I had a phone, I would have taken a picture. Um, but he was a good doctor and that he didn't care that it was going to hurt me or at least inconvenience me to put my bone back in alignment. He didn't lie to me and tell me I was fine. He didn't do anything to mitigate the situation except for the drugs. He didn't do anything to mitigate the situation, but he fixed it. That was exactly where I needed to be. Now, God is not like my doctor. He's not going to make you loopy through your painful trial. But God is a good doctor, and he will acknowledge the pain in your life, and he's the one who has the power to fix it. And the fix often begins in our own souls. But that has to mean we're willing to be honest. And let's, let's be honest about this. Being a patient takes patience where you're going to say to God, how long, O oh Lord, how long must I wait for results? Must I wait for the healing? Waiting is a starting place of that healing. Let's continue on as he continues. David doesn't just complain to God and say how long. I love what he does in these next few verses. He says, consider and answer me. God, pay attention to me, please, and, and respond to my prayer. O oh Lord, my God, light up my eyes lest I sleep the sleep of death, lest my enemies say I have prevailed over him, lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. I mean, if you want to put this in a nutshell, please help me or I'm going to die. <laughs> please, God, listen to what I'm saying. Do something, I pray, or my enemies win, and basically they're your enemies too. Your enemies win, God. Are you okay with that? Do you want to let that happen? 
I love what David does here because in the midst of his heartfelt plea to God, he never gives up praying. And that's something you and I can take note of. We need to not give up and continue, continue to reapproach the throne of grace and realize that God is doing something in that. God is doing something. In fact, that's the whole purpose David prays in the first place. God, I know you're there. Oh, Lord, my God, listen to my prayer. Please consider me, answer me. He pursues God relentlessly. Relentless. Reminded me, because I'm a big football fan, you all know that. Reminded me of this clip that I saw on YouTube, because I'm a huge football fan. I was watching Marshawn Lynch dominate the other team. I don't want to bore you with the details. That other team, the white and black. He breaks two, three tackles, four tackles, uh, five tackles, five so far. That's Marshawn Lynch, by the way. Six tackles, seven tackles, seven or eight tackles, and he finally reaches the goal line. That's football, just in case you didn't know. Um, (laughs) You and I can learn a lot from Marshawn Lynch. We need to be like Marshawn Lynch when it comes to reaching the goal line of having our prayers answered. There's going to be a million things coming your way. Depression, doubt. You got the big big scary looking dude called anxiety. He's running your way. You got to boo like that dude and just kind of jump over him and get to the goal line of saying, God, I don't care what's happening. I don't care who's running my way. I don't care if that dude is the size of Evan. I'm going to dodge him and I'm going to make my prayer known until you answer. That's the kind of determination and relentlessness that we need when it comes to pursuing God in prayer. And in fact, the way I would put it, one of the best examples is found in in Luke chapter 18. And what I want you to do with that example is to channel that character in your life. I want you to channel your own inner persistent widow. You are a persistent widow going forward. Okay, that's who you are. You will be the persistent widow. In fact, if you remember the story, she is the woman who came to the judge and said, Judge, please give me justice. And the judge tosses her aside and says, Get out of my face, lady. I mean, in a nutshell, that's my translation from the Greek. She returns and says, oh, judge, please give me justice. He turns her away. Oh, judge, please give me justice. He turns her away. She chases him down and refuses to quit when it comes to saying, please give me justice. And Jesus uses her as the example that you should have when it comes to pursuing God in prayer. In fact, the the beginning of that text says, he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. I know that there are times when it feels like your prayers are just you by yourself alone and no one else hears. But here's the thing, God hears you. If you're one of his kids, if you've chosen to build a relationship with God through repentance and faith, God is hearing you. And God wants you to chase him down. He's not the unjust judge who simply tosses you aside. He uses that as an anti-example to the kind of God he is, that he's listening, that he cares, and that if the unjust judge who was forced to answer this woman is willing to answer her, how much will the just judge of all the earth be willing to listen to his kids? You need to channel your own inner persistent widow. And let me just put it this way. David continues to pursue the Lord. Consider and answer me, O Lord, my God. Light up my eyes. Really, let's just put it simply. If we're going to be persistent in prayer, we got to learn to pray more. To pray more. And here's the thing. There's two ways that you can use this text here. If you're a Christian, I know that one of the things that I can do as a pastor to make everyone in the room feel conviction at this moment is say, hey, how's your prayer life? And of course, you're going to sheepishly you know, smile. Well, it could be better. That's the, it's the answer we all give, and it's the answer we all know. Like We want to be better at that if we're Christians. We want to pray more. But the, the reality is that we often struggle to do that. 
We struggle to do that. But here's the thing. If you look at David, consider and answer me. He recognizes, even in the midst of his pain, oh Lord, who's God? My God. He recognizes that God is the one that he wants to pursue. Light up my eyes as I sleep the sleep of death. I, I don't want to reject you, God. We need to pray more. In fact, in Matthew chapter 7, Jesus said, Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will knock and it will be open to you. I don't know about your Mormons, but my Mormons, they're not my Mormons, no, but they're the kind of people that will knock on the door and wait for you to answer. They ask and they seek and they knock. Jesus is not telling you to be a Mormon. He's telling you to be a persistent widow with your prayers, to ask, to seek, and to knock, and, it's, and to not quit until God answers. True North, I wonder what would happen if we became a praying ministry. Not just during our sorrows and our pains, but what would happen if we took God seriously and said, God, we are going to pray and pray and pray until you answer our prayers. For what? For a lot of things. I want to see real revival in True North. I don't want to just see fake revival. I don't want to just have a summer camp and get you all hyped up and then you come back and everything's the same. I want to see people changed. I want to see uh, Christians sanctified. I want to see a group of students who are passionate about God's glory and honor, who are unwilling to compromise and who are relentless and not only pursuing God, but pursuing other people. Think about the thousands of people on your campuses. Collectively in this room, you guys probably have access to 10,000 kids at minimum put all the schools together in this room. So one of the things that we're going to do this summer is on Saturdays at three o'clock, we're going to meet in this room and we're just going to take an hour to pray. We're going to pray for this ministry. We're going to pray for you and for your friends. We're going to pray that God would sanctify you and cause revival to stir in your heart. We're going to pray that you love God's word so much that you'd be willing to set aside everything else in your day, including breakfast if necessary, to make time for it. We're going to pray that you guys have an influence on your campuses come this fall. We're going to pray that God does amazing and mighty things. And we're going to do exactly what he tells us to do in Matthew chapter 7, taking a page out of King David's playbook to say, we're going to ask, seek, and knock until you open the door, God. This is it. And you can choose to either take that invitation, that challenge, or you can step aside and let it all pass you by while you watch what God does. And you can watch from the nosebleeds, or you can be on the field and say, God, I'm taking you at your word. I'm going to be like Marshawn Lynch and try to pile drive the guys next to me who are trying to hold me down. I'm going to pursue you in relentless prayer. True North, this is an opportunity for you. Whether your heart is aching and hurting or whether your heart is rejoicing, you're excited about the next school year, wherever this sermon finds you, now is the opportunity. There's no reason why all of us in this room could not make a difference that forever changes your campuses, where you leave a legacy, not of regularity, where, hey, same old, same old, no, where your life leaves an indelible impression upon the schools that you have access to, where you can finally say, man, I'm using my life for what it's worth. Even if you're a freshie, it's not too early. And if you're a senior and you're on your way out, it's not too late. It's time to pray more. Let's see what God does through a praying ministry who is unwilling to stop asking, seeking, and knocking. Saturdays at three are coming as soon as possible. As soon as we can get that thing rolling, we're going to be here. Expect to hear about that. Follow us on Instagram. We'll post about it. We'd love to see you here. 
We'll teach you how to pray. We'll give you prayer, prayer tools. We'll give you all that you need to make that hour count so that you don't feel like you're just wandering around twiddling your thumbs. We're gonna make this an easy, as easy as possible for you. But prayer is work and good prayer is hard work. Would love for you to join us in that. It's not just about praying like the persistent widow. You need to be like her. It's not just about praying more, but it's about praying the right way, praying biblically. I love the way David points this out here. David is pointing God and saying, God, consider and answer me. And if you look at the verses here, consider and answer me, O God. Light up my eyes lest I sleep the sleep of death. He says, lest my enemy say, and recognize that King David represents Israel. His enemies are also God's enemies. He's praying to God, God, do you want my enemies slash your enemies to prevail over your chosen king, your righteous tool? Lest my foes rejoice because I'm shaken. I'm, I'm removed. I, I, I'm, I, I'm uh, unstable because of, because of them. He says, God, don't you want to change that? Don't you want to defend your cause? Don't you want your honor to be upheld? That's what King David is essentially praying, even as he prays personally. He's the representative of, of Israel. And so when we're praying to God, it needs to be biblical prayers. It needs to be the kind of prayers that says, God, I know I, I don't want to be in this situation. I hate my life right now. I don't like my classes. I don't like my friends because they're more like enemies. I don't like this. I don't like that. I don't like my church. I don't like Pastor Rod. I don't like, whatever it is. You can pray all those and complain to God and God's willing to hear your prayer. But here's the thing that you should also be praying. God, what is your will in this? And let me tell you, there's a lot of, a lot of information in scripture about what his will is. In fact, in 1 Peter chapter 1, we read about this and I preached on this just a few weeks ago. He says, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. One of God's goals in testing your faith and putting you through the ringer is to make your faith genuine, or at least to show you that it's genuine. 1 Thessalonians 4.3, for this is the will of God, your sanctification. God doesn't want you to be an immature baby Christian for the rest of your life. And in fact, high school is a great time to mature up and to act like a mature and godly young man or woman. God doesn't want baby Christians. 1 Thessalonians 5.18, give thanks in all circumstances for this is the will of God. This is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. When you're hurting, what are you supposed to do? Give thanks because that's for all circumstances. Evan and I went to, to Mission Hospital Friday to visit with someone who's in the hospital right now. His cancer, um, He's trying to regain weights. He fell, hurt himself, um, and he's, he's, been, he's been in the hospital bed a lot, not just for the, the day that he's been there this week, but he's been in the hospital bed a lot. Guy is just, like his body is just falling apart. <laughs> he's got an incredible testimony. And I remember at the end, we're, we're praying for him. He says, would you pray that I would not complain? <laughs> would you pray that I would be a good witness in this hospital? The guy's got tubes on his chest and on his arm and the thing keeps on beeping. And we're like, we're just, we're, it's frustrating. I'm frustrated for him. He's in this hospital bed and the hospitals aren't, they're not the Ritz Carlton. You know that, right? They're not meant to be, I mean, they try to make them as comfortable as possible, but it's a hospital. And so this guy is struggling and he's in pain and he's saying, would you please pray that I wouldn't complain? Pray that I would be a good witness to Christ in this hospital bed. And I thought, that's it. That's it. I meant, I walked away probably more encouraged than he was. But that's God's will for us, whether you're in a hospital bed or whether you're in the Ritz-Carlton bed, to give thanks in all circumstances. Biblical prayers. 
It's making sure that we're not living a life that is unfruitful or unhelpful, but giving God our best, especially in prayer. In these final verses, I want to point out to you that in the psalm itself, nothing has changed. David's situation is entirely and exactly the same. He gives no indication of a process or a progress here. But I want to show you how he ends his complaints. Look at this. He says, but despite of everything I just said, in spite of all that I just laid at your feet, God, but I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. That word for steadfast means loyal, means covenant. It's the kind of love that does not depend on circumstances, but depends entirely on the promise of that love no matter what. In fact, just a couple days ago, there was a promise of that love that was done right up here of a husband and a wife, now husband and wife, who promised in sickness and in health, for richer or for poorer, and all the other things that he said. (laughs) They promised that they would love each other. That's steadfast love. That's loyal love. That's covenant love. And that's what David is pointing to. He says, God, even though it feels like you've rejected me, even though I feel like my life is crumbling down all around me, I have trusted in your steadfast love. Your commitment to me is all that I need right now. It's everything I need and it's all that I need. I've trusted in that. And that really is the posture for the Christian who's hurting. A willingness to, point number three, commit to trust him through the pain. You could say committing to trust him in the pain. Committing to trust him during the pain. Committing to trust him uh, despite the pain. All of those make sense and all of those work. It's a willingness to say, God, I'm not letting go. It's like if someone is drowning and, and, and you know, there's a hand in the water that reaches out to pull them. Like that person who's drowning, they're going to cling to that hand and nothing is going to rip that hand away from them. They're going to hold that hand for dear life because that's all they got. That's all they got. And in a similar sense, when you realize that God is for you, who can be against you, you realize I'm clinging to you, God, because you're all I got and you're all that I need. In the moment, that seems hard. I get it. There's a great story. I think it's based on a true story. Where Mr. Miyagi is training Daniel-san. Mr. Miyagi agrees to teach Daniel-san karate. And Daniel-san is excited, and so Mr. Miyagi gives him all these exercises to do. He says, paint the house. So he does the house thing, right? He says, okay, now wax the car. And he teaches him how to wax the car. And he says, okay, now scrub the deck. Uh, or sand, sand, sand the floor. Sand the floor. Now paint the fence. And so Daniel-san dutifully does exactly what Mr. Miyagi says. But one day, it was the straw that broke the camel's back. Daniel saw Mr. Miyagi with the fishing pole headed out. And he tells Daniel-san, keep on waxing the car, whatever he was doing. Paint the fence. Keep, keep doing that. I'm going to go fishing. And Daniel-san gets upset. He's like, what gives? I was, I was, I, you were supposed to teach me karate. <laughs> And he says, I am teaching you karate. And then he says some inappropriate words. And he says, that's not true. That's not true. I'm your slave. All I'm doing here is just waxing your car and cleaning your house. I'm basically your indentured servant. You're not teaching me karate. And then Mr. Miyagi with his smug, you know, like I got this kind of situation face going on. He says, and he yells at him, Daniel-san. (laughs) 
He says, show me, paint the fence. And he's like this. He's like, no, 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 paint the fence. <laughs> and then he does, he's like, suddenly, he's like, oh, I get it now. So Daniel-san is doing these awesome karate moves. He's like, now show me, wax on, wax off. And then Daniel-san's like doing this. And suddenly he realizes that the movements he's been practicing and his muscles have been learning actually do something more than just, uh, than, than just like do this. They're actually moves in karate. And then next thing you know, Mr. Miyagi's like, okay, you ready? And he goes, da, 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 da. And then Daniel-san's doing all the movements and painting the house and washing the fence and all that. And Daniel, over, like in a matter of seconds, becomes a karate master. He's a black belt. <laughs> and of course, this is not real life, but you get the point. God is a lot like Mr. Miyagi in that, in that, in the moments, we may not fully understand what our master is doing to us, why our master is having us paint a fence or clean the house or whatever else it is that we're going through. We may not fully understand, but he's got a plan. And usually, and sometimes maybe never in this life, but usually in retrospect, we can look back and say, oh, I get it. I, it makes sense now. In the moment, I hated it, but now I get it. This movie happens a lot faster than our lives do, but the principle is still there. It's not questioning our Mr. Miyagi, or not questioning God, and instead letting him teach us and grow us and train us. What does that look like? Well, if we're going to commit to trust him through the pain, that means, first of all, we have to be willing to meditate on his perfect love. You learned about meditation last week, thinking about, chewing on, uh, letting your mind ruminate upon the idea that God is perfect in his love, that there is nothing or, or no one that can ever change the fact that he has covenanted himself to you. If you're a Christian, nothing can ever separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus, and that's firm. Nothing changes that. In fact, that's what David says. I've trusted in that. Have you trusted in that? Because if not, no wonder you're in despair because you have nothing to cling to. But David says, this is going to moor me to God. This is going to keep me steadfast and faithful. I'm trusting his steadfast love. God cannot lie. God cannot change. God cannot do anything that would contradict his character, which means we can believe that even when we're in the worst of circumstances, God is still God. He's still on the throne and we can trust him even when we don't fully understand him. You need to think about that. You need to meditate on his perfect love and remember that his salvation is coming. It is a now and a not yet. There is a, there's a twofold aspect of God's salvation. You're saved when you repent and put your trust in him and you will be saved finally and fully when he takes your dead body and makes it sinless, when he restores it, 1 Corinthians 15, 5. It's the idea that God is going to make your body without sin, no more pain, no more sorrow, nothing to ever make you sorrowful again. But that's not yet. In the meantime, we hurt. But in the there and then, we won't. That's what David says. I shall rejoice in your salvation. His commitment to God is even though you slay me, like Job. Job said this. God, even though you slay me. And didn't, didn't God really let Job go through the ringer? God, even though you slay me, yet will I trust him. One of my spiritual heroes, Johnny Erickson Tata, says she wants to take her wheelchair with her to heaven. Johnny Erickson Tata was about your age when she dove into a shallow lake and broke her neck and suddenly became a quadriplegic. And now she lives her entire life in a wheelchair, having people take care of all of her needs. Just imagine that for a second, ladies. Guys, think about that. Imagine someone taking care of all of your needs. You no longer have privacy. She says, when I go to heaven, I want to take my wheelchair with me, and here's what I want to do. 
I want to thank Jesus for it. I can't even fathom that. Can you even, can you fathom that? Can you say before God, I mean, hopefully none of us ever has to go through that, but can you say right now that if God put you in a wheelchair for the rest of your life, that you'd want to take that wheelchair and say, thank you, God? That's Johnny Erickson Todd right there. And that's what suffering does to us. When it is fully mature, God helps us to see that our suffering is something that is a gift. We can rejoice in the fact that his salvation is going to be far better because of the pain that we temporarily endure. The last part, verse six, I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. I love that. We're meditating on his perfect love. We're meditating on his coming salvation. And all we have to do is just take two seconds to realize that he has given us so much in his past providences. He is taking care of all of our needs. He has loved us. He has protected us. He has sustained us. This is one reason why I love, love, love. And I, I say this all the time to you guys. I love the idea of journaling. In fact, when I started thinking about the idea that he has dealt bountifully with me me and thinking about the past and how God has been faithful to us, I went back to my old journals and I have a few of them from when y'all was your age. One of them I have, I wrote when I went through a breakup, it was insightful. I've grown a lot. I'm not the same guy. (laughs) That's that's encouraging, I hope. Um, I wrote another one um, and it's in my own handwriting. It's so so interesting to see that. It's like an artifact, a relic of, (laughs) anyway. um, One of the entries was when I got kicked out the first time from my house. Um, and, and it was terrible. Like the things I wrote and the things I put on, on paper, like I told, I've told Kristen that when I die, she used to burn every remnant of everything I've ever written. Or, cause I still journal and I still write stuff down and it's still part of wh- who I am and what I do. Cause I want to remember how God has dealt bountifully with me. And when I look back at my high school journals and I remember what it was like to be in your shoes and to live the life that you're living, not the same way cause I was poor, but to live the life that you're living, it reminds me, man, God has been so faithful to me. God has been so kind. God should have taken me out way early on, but instead he sustained me. He's protected me. He's helped me get through some of the worst situations I could possibly fathom. And God was so good in those things. You need to think back about the way God has been faithful to you. One of the best ways to do that is to keep a running commentary on what God is doing in your life right now. Journal it, remember it, so that you can look back and say, God, you're good. Unless you have a photographic memory. Otherwise, the rest of us need something like a journal. That's what it looks like to commit to trust him through the pain, meditating on his perfect love, meditating on his coming salvation, and meditating on his past providences. And I love the way that he, he finalizes verse 6, I will sing. I will sing. I will rejoice. How's your worship? David's committed to worship God through it all. How are you doing with that? really to emphasize the importance of a sermon like this. I want to point you to a song that was recently, relatively recently written. The lyrics go like this. If they say, who cares if one more light goes out? In a sky of a million stars, it flickers, flickers. Who cares when someone's time runs out? If a moment is all we are, we're quicker, quicker. Who cares if one more light goes out? Well, I do. Chester Bennington wrote that. And he wrote that about a friend who was going through cancer. He wanted to affirm the fact that I care about your life. I care that you live and not die. I care about you. And again, I I don't 
think any of the people that wrote that song are Christians or believers. And so I want you to look at that from the perspective of what does the world have to offer you? What does that, what does that look like for you? So Chester writes this song for his friend. And not too long after that, the very same guy who wrote those lyrics is the one and the same guy who let despair steal his own life from him. What you have to realize is that the hope that the world offers you is at best a vapor. In the moment, it may look good. But when you take a closer look at it, it disappears right in front of you. The guy who wrote the, the lyrics, who cares if someone lives or dies? I do. And yet he's the guy who took his own life. Did he know about his own his own philosophy, of course, he wrote the lyrics. And yet that wasn't strong enough to hold his own life down. I'm not suggesting that any one of you are ever going to do this, and I hope that never happens, but I, I do want you to realize the seriousness of responding to the message of Christ, responding to the gospel and understanding that that is the only thing that's heavy enough to hold your soul down when you're in turmoil. Christians obviously hurt. You got King David who's writing about his terrorizing experience. And yet, David's confidence is not that the situation is going to get better. His confidence is that his God is impeccably good. Have you gotten right with that God? Have you put your full trust and hope in that God? Or are you hoping, like Chester, that things just kind of work themselves out? Young person, this is your time, this is your opportunity. Again, you're being offered the gift of salvation in Christ if you're willing to accept it. But it will cost you everything. It means being willing to lay everything down at the foot of Christ and say, I will follow you to the ends of the earth. My life no longer belongs to me, it belongs to you. And when you're willing to do that, that's when you can have a hope that sustains you. When there's no end in sight, you can have a God who carries you, who comforts you, who's willing to enable you to work through it all. Someone once said, God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our consciences, but shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. God is presently, right now, drawing himself to you in your pain. Are you listening? Let's pray.